0: Sponsored by A to Z Wineworks. From asparagus to zucchini, there's hardly a food that doesn't pair beautifully with A to Z Wineworks' cool climate Oregon wines. A to Z's Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and Chardonnay are ridiculously food-friendly. For any occasion or any cuisine, A to Z Wine works. Find out why at AtoZWineworks.com. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Safe for natural disasters, epidemics, or wars, it's rare for U.S. media to cover international events. This incomplete picture is often distorted further by outlets that are sympathetic to corporate interests, which is perhaps why the gilets jaunes in France, or the yellow vests, haven't gotten much good press over here. In the August issue, Christopher Ketchum, a longtime Harper's contributor and author of the new book, This Land, spent time among the gilets gens and found a movement that is at once uniquely French, but bears many similarities to Occupy Wall Street. I spoke to Ketchum about neoliberalism, the gilets Jean, and what lessons the American left could learn from them. I will also say that because Ketchum is particularly passionate about the subject, there is some swearing in this episode. So if that sort of thing offends you, listen to something else. I think the main thing that just struck me reading the piece is this kind of fascinating tendency of French people relate their social movements to the revolution and that whenever there is a mass mobilization of people, it's like, well, this is part of our culture. This is a part of our history and that. That's so rare in in a European context or just all over the world, it's kind of rare. so can you can you speak to that um, tendency, like the French love of demonstrations and mass mobilization?
1: Well, yeah, I mean I, can, I think this is an American. That's the context from which I view all this stuff and And yes, when I look at how the French protest in often very spontaneous ways, Um, uh, sometimes, as with the gilets jaunes, very violent ways, I then look back at my fellow countrymen here in the United States and regard them as conformist sheep (laughs) who are just worthless when it comes to actually engaging in some sort of protest that will pose a threat to the status quo and to the power system. I think the French do realize that Power and privilege never cedes power and privilege without some sort of threat, and usually that threat is backed by uh, some sort of violence. In the case of the Gilets Jaunes, violence against property, it's destruction of uh, stores and um, homes uh, of the rich, stores frequented by the rich, areas and neighborhoods all across cities in France that are known as... Tourist meccas for the very wealthy, or residential quarters of the very wealthy. So, this this tendency to to protest, yeah. I mean, the French, you know, the French. When I lived in France, the French would be like, you know, the 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 contrôleur or the you know the people who run the uh, the SNCF, which is the regional rail line around Paris. Or the R E R S and CF, you know, they'd be like they'd be docked ten cents in their pay and suddenly the whole metro system would shut down for two days and you'd have, you know, marchers in the streets. Students in the same manner. Any threat to subsidies for university would be met with uh, enormous crowds of kids marching the streets. The difference between um those types of marches and that of the gilets jaunes is that they were discrete, they were for discrete purposes and uh, aimed towards a single goal, you know, stop this pay cut, raise this subsidy for students, etc., etc. And once that was achieved, then they would go home. The gilets jaunes were more amorphous in, in their in their goals and sought a broader change in society or seek at this point. You know, at the time of our talking, it seems that a lot of the gilets jaunes have gone home or have lost, at least lost some of the fire in their bellies.
0: You're talking about the Yellow Vest strategy of going to specific neighborhoods to attacking certain storefronts that are designed for the ultra wealthy. What is the value of destroying that property? Because in the U.S., there is a tendency to say, oh, well, you know, you can go mess up Chase Bank, but then the poor, like underpaid people who work there are going to have to clean it up. Is that a prevailing attitude in France, or is it is it viewed? Is the value of destruction of property viewed differently there?
1: It's viewed purely symbolically. So the the first of all, it's just a bunch of inanimate objects. Second of all, the destruction serves a purpose. That these people are not kidding around, and that they will um, they will up the ante soon enough to destroy larger things than the mere storefront. So I think it serves a a purpose to show that the rich, the powerful, and the privileged will not be able to escape into their enclaves to buy their useless junk because the gilets jaunes will be there with torches and pitchforks and hammers smashing the windows and Molotov cocktails to burn down the silly waste merchandise that uh, fills these useless offenses against humanity known as luxury goods purveyors.
0: You know, a lot of the piece is talking about how the goals of the Yellow Vest are not always clearly represented either in the French press and certainly not in the American press. And it seems like the movement kind of emerged overnight And reporting. Did you get a sense of sort of this overnight thing, or was it a gradual buildup of grievances? And who, how did this agenda sort of get set as part of that, the buildup to these mass protests?
1: Oh no, there have been, this has been building for years because of the cuts in social spending and the austerity programs that, previous, that governments previous to that of Macron had have, uh, have put into place and so yes this was building for a long long time and the finally the spark that set these people up was the um, imposition of a carbon tax but the carbon tax was very narrow in that it raised by you know a few centimes per liter diesel and gasoline prices at the pumps and of course the great majority of french people who live in cities were not as affected as those in rural or suburban areas where because of the cuts in public services including that of public transit they depend more than ever on their automobiles and so they saw the writing on the wall they were like wait a minute wait wait wait, wait. okay you're going to impose a carbon tax on the on the poor and the lower middle classes but What about all these rich people flying around in airplanes jet setting from globalist city to globalist city? And what about all their mass consumption of again useless designer luxury goods that no one needs what about that? You're not gonna that's not gonna be part of the carbon taxation program brother really and so the French not being idiots Reacted to this as any intelligent human being would and uh, and became enraged at the hypocrisy of it and the, the the brazen hypocrisy of it
0: the term that you could use to describe these cuts is austerity that's right but then also the carbon tax itself is like a ne- neoliberal policy right. so let's let's break down the term neoliberal
1: neoliberalism very simply is an ideology that says that markets will answer all our questions and needs Uh, and will determine um, the present and future of societies, that the market is the answer to everything. And um, well, guess what? Markets cannot be relied upon to uh, provide the public good. If we relied upon markets to provide the public good, we wouldn't have, um, I don't know, public schools, public sanitation, public roads, public utilities um uh you know, pub- daycare uh the you know office. the post office <laughs> uh medicare yeah. medicaid i mean come on man it's like you know these people who think that that you can just drop every value of society into a marketplace and somehow have have you know the profit and loss be your determining factor as to how we're going to arrange the institutions and functions of society they're mad i mean they've lo- they're. From my perspective they have lost their minds or they at least lost lost uh, any functional relationship with reality because reality is that we're all in this together we're like brothers and sisters and we gotta act that way yes and you know it's like nothing happens nothing functions in society without massive public investment in infrastructure that allows for all those other activities to happen
0: macron is an interesting example in the build up to the most recent french election there was this fear about marine le pen but then macron came along and it's like okay so here is this nice technocratic liberal who's like a banker and he married his teacher which is weird but like he's he's the sensible choice right and all over other parts of the world, including the US, where we had a nice technocratic liberal in Hillary Clinton, and she was defeated. Same goes for uh, a lot of stuff happening in Canada with like Rob Ford, whatever is happening in the UK, like, there seems to be a real rejection of this sort of centrist, technocratic liberalism that is, we have to appeal to all sides, and sort of try and get more conservative people in the fold. But then it no one is actually very happy. <laughs> I
1: think I think the problem is that all the terminology that we use to describe right and left, liberal, conservative, you know, right, we talk about folks like Trump versus Hillary, right? I think that those are terms that are no longer describing the actual reality. The reality is that you have a ruling class. And the ruling class consists of both Democrats and Republicans in in this country. In France, it consists of both the left and the right. These are elites. They're very wealthy. They're all born into wealth, or mostly born into wealth, raised and educated in elite schools. And then uh, they run in elite circles in a very close-knit, insular society, a society within the society. So really the question is, shall we have elites rule or shall we have the people rule? And, um, so to, to, to look, you look at Hillary Clinton, she's a member of the elite. She serves capital. She serves the forces of, um, of economic plunder and pillage. She serves the big pharma and big defense and, uh, industries of murder and warfare and, uh, bloodshed and, the implicit bloodshed that goes on with uh, from the scum buckets on Wall Street who were some of her main funders during the 2016 campaign so
0: in the main campaign stops that she did
1: yeah she makes all these secret speeches to Goldman Sachs etc cetera, so et cetera. what did she say to them well I know what she said to them she said to them I will drop on my knees before you, the bankers, and fillet you till the sun goes down. And then I'll do it the next day and the next day and the next day as a faithful servant of mammon. Okay? That's what Hillary Clinton is. And so is Trump any different? No. The only benefit of Trump is that he is openly... a a malevolent force. He is openly disgusting. So there's no hypocrisy in Trump, which is actually refreshing. He's just straight up a a believer in predatory capital. Um, And well, in that sense, good for him.
0: Right. And I mean, I think the divide that you're talking about, you know, this is how we're talking, we're having this conversation the same week that Nancy Pelosi is reprimanding members of her party that are progressive. And then, of course, Donald Trump is jumping on the bandwagon being like, well, hey, go back to where you're from. Actually, I didn't mean that. Just like go back for a few, like a couple of days to see how it is, like whatever excuse he wants to come up with. Um, But...
1: I think Nancy Pelosi, we need to get rid of her. And absolutely, yeah. we should have AOC and the squad take over all of Congress. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi is a prostitute of wealth, and there's yeah. no way around it. She's a servant, just like Hillary Hillary Clinton, of, of money.
0: And a benefactor of nepotism.
1: Yeah. So I'm totally down with AOC. Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: Over the past few years, there's been this tendency to write off certain left-wing or progressive movements as anti-Semitic or racist. So in the US, it's like the Bernie bros. And then in the UK, it's the Corbinistas who hate Jews. And like, I'm not saying that these, that racism and anti-Semitism are not important and they should be treated very seriously, Mm. but it's clear if you look around the world that the majority of those problems related to anti-Semitism and racism that are being violently acted upon are coming from the right so yes. when did this tendency in the media or politicians again sort of neoliberal politicians that we've been talking about to label either Gu- les jean or progressives as problematic let's say when did when did that arise and why
1: um i i don't know but you know? <laughs> i i don't know but 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 what i what i will say is that it uh, almost certainly uh, has become more of a currency in our national conversation and international conversation with regard to the gilets jaunes since the rise of um, of identity politics on the left. And so it's very easy to exploit identitarian ideology, um, very easy for those on the right to explo- exploit identitarian ideology and use that to paint progressives, radicals as somehow, you know, as you said, misogynist, sexist, racist, um, transphobic. I don't know. I mean, there's like so many possibilities, uh, so many so many means by which you can tar uh, radicals. So in the case of the Gilets Jaunes, right, they were declared, uh, first of all, anti-Semitic because, yeah, this is a movement of hundreds of thousands of people, and yeah, there are anti-se- anti-Semites among us. And so you had some incidents Especially where, in France. <laughs> especially in France. So you had some guys yelling, I don't know, death to the Jews or something. And then you had some incidents that suggested some sort of misogyny. I can't remember what they were, but few and far between, just as incidents that were said to be evidence of anti-Semitism were also few and far between. I mean, rare to say the least. One of the attacks on the Gilets was that they um, they're racist and anti-immigrant. Thing about it is this: this may be true. This may be true, and and again, it's a very it's a it's a sizable movement. Of, of at its inception, it was a movement of hundreds of thousands of people. When I went out in February and March and spoke with these folks uh, at length, at random in the streets of Paris and in Rouen. And in the suburbs of Paris, I didn't find one of them who fit the description, and I write about that in the piece. So I I don't know. That's what I'm going to go on. I'm going to go on my own empirical experience and observation 1st firsthand observation, and um, and conclude that yeah maybe they maybe they hate the Jews, but they're not they're not telling me they hate the Jews. They're telling me they hate the elite, wealthy, predatory classes who are sequestering resources unto themselves at the expense at the broad expense of society that's what I got from the Gilets Jean um, so make of that what you will
0: as you were saying this is a huge really broad swath of su- French society and you oh,
1: know no, no not, not a broad swath but it it consists of a sizable number of people and supporters i don't think that that, that it can it, it included the upper classes i don't think right. it included the upper the haute bourgeoisie the ruling classes uh like let's say the top 10 to 15 percent of income earners in france i do not think we're in support of the gilets no. okay so not a broad swath but a broad sweat a broad swath of the lower yes. of the poor the unemployed pensioners retirees the lower classes and the lower middle classes right for sure and and you know in french society french society is is o- openly understood as being divided into these class elements you know like in the united states we don't have any classes right there's no such thing as class difference in the united states we're all equal and we're all the same well of course that's bullshit but uh so anyways just to your point about the, sure. the support no, the, the the the
0: I mean just in terms of the actual number of people let's say like it's because in our world there are elites who control the majority of the wealth, and then there's the rest of us who don't control that wealth. And in that regard, it's a a lot of different people and a lot of different types of people. People you know, urban, rural, what have you. And they're largely decentralized, kind of a horizontal movement, but they, they have this coherent set of demands and they're also very organized. So how does the collective kind of make decisions? without a formal leadership like what does that look like they
1: have the they have what's called l'assemblée des assemblées which is a, a meeting i don't know if it's still ongoing but when i was there this is a meeting that happened i think every week or every other week of representatives from all the different assemblies so an assembly of assemblies is sort of the bringing together uh, the in-gathering of all the various representatives of regional hubs of the, the gilet movement and how they come to make decisions i don't know i wasn't there i didn't attend any of those meetings and um my interest is more in um the origins of the movement and then in the activities of the of the folks in the street that was to me the most fascinating part to to watch the um, to watch in a sense the the coherence in organization of the um of the rioting there instead of it being sort of um this this mad confusion which it was at times there seemed to be a kind of organic like the crowd the mob if you will had had transformed into sort of this org- organic being that that you know on the Champs-Élysées for example would Turn to the left and be like, alright, we're gonna destroy Hugo Boss now. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and oh shit. There's there's um um that was a restaurant that elite people like to go to and then they go into that
0: but and how was do like, they do that? How do they do I, that? <laughs> I
1: don't I don't know. I don't know. I was impressed though at the spontaneity, <laughs> togetherness, the solidarity. Mm-hmm. The incredible solidarity on the streets during these protests, during the marches, and during what turned into riots, during the what Eric Hobsbawm would call the, the direct action, mm-hmm. um, uh, the burning, looting. How did they how did they do it? I don't know. Uh, uh, it was it was the spontaneity of um, I guess of. of of togetherness, the spontaneity of this of people realizing that they're all in together. I mean, for example, there we got tear. I got tear gas many times. Got knocked around, beaten up, pushed around by the cops. And in the middle of these mad panics, when tear gas would be flying over our heads, skittering off the tops of our heads, people I get slammed by someone passing by, and they would say in the middle of this panic, they say "pardon, pardon, monsieur, pardon, pardon." Like so, in the middle of this chaos. And confusion, you would have, as I mentioned earlier, an incredible politesse among the protesters. And and also, a, like a profound care and concern, one for the other. Like at one point I collapsed, because I got hit by too much tear gas. And this dude, Tongyi, and I never got his last name, I never saw his face because he was masked, he was mm-hmm. and um and he just picked me up and he poured... Saying solution in my eyes, and he like held me, like just held me up and just <sighs> cradled me. It was like, all right, dude, you're gonna be okay, because he saw that I was really, I was injured, and um, so there was a lot of that going on that, that day. The day that I was uh, the, um, the one day that I really saw a great deal of violence in the Champs Elysees, which was March sixteenth of two thousand nineteen.
0: I'm thinking of notable or at least somewhat successful anti-capitalist actions in the U.S. And those have been about occupying space, most famously That's right. Occupy Wall Street. That's right, and um, there
1: are great parallels to be drawn between Occupy and the Gilets Jaunes. Well, yes. Yeah. Please say more. Uh, okay, so, so again, a decentralized movement that prizes horizontality, that has no leaders. That is anarchistic in nature, in the sense, in the old school sense of anarchism, in which you do not have, uh, you do not have that hierarchical structure, you do not have a a, 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 um, a centralized bureaucracy directing uh, a, a directing actions and determining events, uh, and and in a sense, both occupy and the Gilets, at the at, at their inception more than as they evolved uh, had no demands beyond i mean with the gilet was get rid of the carbon tax but beyond that let's change society and occupy wall street made a point of not listing off specific demands because occupy wall street's intent was to change society as a whole let's let's actually change things let us take down wall street first of all but taking down wall street means a whole bunch of other things it means that it means attacking an entire sector of society that uh, makes its money through uh, parasitism, through feeding on the labor of others, feeding on the activity of society and sucking the blood out of the, the, the American people for, you know, for outrageous profits. So, so, yeah, when I was I covered Occupy back when and spent a lot of time down there in Zuccotti Park and did a lot of the marches. And I guess the only the only criticism I would make of Occupy was that they, they did not engage in enough property destruction. I mean, they had many opportunities going up and down, let's say, Fifth Avenue. They could have just destroyed all that, you know, just just raged. Of course, the police in the United States, I don't think, are as tolerant of that sort of activity as, uh, as the police in France, although the police in France are highly repressive and highly violent. But... It could also be that the um, American protesters simply don't have the same level of uh, excessive physical courage that French protesters have. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but.
0: Um, well, I think it's 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 worth pointing out that the NYPD is basically a small army. Yes, and, and they would
1: they would be deployed army like against were... <laughs> any sort of property destruction. That's right. And I mean, there so, was
0: just and just like even walking around downtown, like there would be like. Four deep, police cars just lined up Sixth Avenue, like they were ready mm-hmm. to un- unload on these people, mm-hmm. and it was scary. Just yeah. as you know,
1: yeah, it was scary. No, I got I got knocked around by the cops a bunch of times when I was covering Zuccotti Park and covering Occupy. But um
0: do French police have guns?
1: Some French police have guns. Some don't. Okay, but way.
0: not everyone <laughs> is given a a, a killing machine. Yeah, they're machine. not. Yeah, like not, not giving a killing machine. Head. That's okay. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No. Um
1: the the other parallel um with occupy between the, the similarity between occupy and the gilets jaunes was that occupy was maligned by the by the liberal class in this country just as the gilets jaunes were yes uh, as i write about extensively in the piece and the destruction of occupy contrary to what some historians have asserted which is that occupy just fizzled it just faded. It just <laughs> faded into a vacuum of its own weakness, or in internal contradictions, or whatever terms that that some that critics of occupy have used. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, no. What happened is the Obama White House coordinated with the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI and local P.D. militarized police departments in a sweeping move to wipe away from the landscape, the occupiers. And this all happens in November of 2011. So, um, yeah. Thanks, Obama. (laughs) Thanks, Obama, you good liberal, for taking out one of the most important social movements of the early 21st century in the United States through organizing the coercive power of the state against the people.
0: Do you feel like if the gilets jaunes movement continues and there is perhaps better coverage something like that could be replicated here or is it just really like some more nebulous cultural difference that can't actually be
1: bridged i think there is a huge cultural difference i think what we discussed at the beginning of our conversation about the the history of the french revolution it runs to the blood of the french and they sing that song that bloody song the marseillaise you know Oh, wait, I have it here. Listen to the sound in the fields, the howling of these fearsome soldiers. They are coming into our midst to cut the throats of your sons and consorts. That's their national anthem, man.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's their national anthem.
0: (laughs) It's true. But, I mean, with the the, vests the way that they talk about Climate change is not something that because so much of the discussion about climate change in the U.S. is like, well, you really shouldn't use a straw. When in reality, it, there's no discussion of like, well, there are probably like ten companies that account for like ninety percent of all emissions, mm, and the mm. amount of emissions that I, a person trying to live in the world, make it's are actually very small.
1: That's right. So you have industrial industrial scale systems that are the problem that are the main source of of um of carbon pollution and uh, and then of course in the United States is the US military. So anybody who wants to address climate change in uh, say uh, say the the say uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, well she she will have to address the question of the military industrial complex given that it is it is the largest largest single carbon polluter of any institution in the United States. But the Gilets jaunes, yeah, the Gilets jaunes Yes, they they with so with the imposition of this this ridiculous, hypocritical, unequal carbon tax, um, or rather just tax on fuels, right? They quickly put two and two together and and said, well, no. If we want to tackle climate change, which we do, which we the Gilets Jaunes recognize is a a mortal threat to the lives of all, if we want to deal with this problem then let's actually deal with it by imposing regulations and taxes on those sectors that do the most polluting and also those parts of society who are most responsible for the pollution. Half of all carbon uh, pollution today was emitted into the atmosphere roughly after 1980 when you also had the incredible centralization of wealth in the hands of the few not just in the United States but worldwide. So yeah, make the rich pay. Make the rich pay. There's a reason for the guillotine. There is <laughs> a it reason back. for the guillotine, okay? <laughs> people, it's uh, I think what the gilets jaunes might be whatever the gilets jaunes say, people in the streets enraged people granted is that hey, look, either you're going to change willingly or it's the guillotine. All right? And this comes back to something I was saying earlier: that power and privilege do not cede uh, an inch without basically having a 45 caliber pistol stuck in their mouths, and then some maniac on the other end—the maniac being an enraged citizenry—on the trigger, saying, "All right, so here's your choice. Here's your choice. All right, so you're gonna you're gonna be nice. You're gonna redistribute wealth. You're gonna uh, stop acting like a complete asshole." wealthy elite people or it's the 45 caliber in the mouth man really? one or the other okay so we don't want to hurt anybody but it's it's time for like it's time to change things yes. and so that that's what the gilet. that's what i was so impressed with the gilet Jean because it, when i spoke to them they said hey we are fed up we are fed up and it, some sort of uprising is necessary now as i mentioned earlier the gilets Jean for the moment seem to be fading but i think that that rage is always still there it is at the moment just beneath the surface all it needs is some catalyzing event another catalyzing event similar to the imposition of that carbon tax in 2018 to set these folks off again and running and uh, to reignite that movement
0: it's not a literal guillotine but it is like a legislative guillotine is the RIC, right. which they came up with. So could you explain that concept and sort of the, val- the potential value of All that? Right. So,
1: so that is one of the most talked about policy proposals among the gilets jaunes. The, the, it's called the RIC for short, which means referendum d'initiative citoyenne. And um, that means basically it's a citizens initiative referendum uh, system that they want to put in place which would allow for a mass veto of legislation and also the creation of legislation so basically democratizing radically democratizing the process of lawmaking radically democratizing the the process of annulling laws that the the great mass of citizens consider to be inimical to their interests so yeah that's a wonderful program direct democracy and it, that harkens back to the San who also um, advocated a program of absolute direct democracy, and that's that's what we need. I mean, representative democracy is fine until it becomes totally, irrevocably corrupted by money, as is the situation we have now in the developed world and in yeah. the, de- the developing world. I mean, look. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, Yeah, the RIC. It's a beautiful thing.
0: Do you feel like if there was a term like austerity in the U.S. as opposed to just sort of like these nebulous wars that don't allow us to invest in things like infrastructure, there could be more mobilization of citizens?
1: Occupy was that mobilization. Um, And why did Occupy happen? Because of the crash. Right. So you need large-scale catalyzing events to bring people into the streets. A financial crash would do it. Skyrocketing energy prices might do it. I'm not sure what else. I mean, there are probably many other factors that I can't uh, think of off the top of my head right now that that would produce an upwelling, a citizen upwelling... And send people into the streets. And, and it, it, it's not that we're... It's, it, I was about to say, oh, we're too fat and happy. Well, guess what? The Gilets Jaunes, in terms of the benefits that they uh, they accrue from the existing social welfare state, even in its diminished form under the under the austerity quote right. unquote in france is still far more advanced far more generous than anything we have in the united states so even with the gilets jaunes being quote unquote fat and happy relative to the to americans even with that they got out in the streets because mm-hmm. they see the writing on the wall they see what's going on they see where this is headed and it's headed towards a lot more austerity so i don't know what it is with the american people i, I I just, the American people talk this big game, especially right wingers, libertarians talk this big game. They got their arm up, they got all these weapons, you know. They got, oh, look at my arsenal. <laughs> but they don't do anything about it. which is true. Use the fucking weapons, man. <laughs> <If you> get, <laughs> it means if you're going to keep talking, what is, look, Wall Street's right there, motherfucker, use it.
0: You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for twenty-one ninety-seven, visit harpers.org slash save.